Thank you, guys. <clears throat> it's a doing it as well with my soul is always a good way to get in on get me in a good mood while we're getting started. That is just one of the most powerful hymns ever written. Um, hey, quick um, quick pro tip. So my IBC root beer is in my coffee mug. Um, uh, you don't know what's in there any Sunday, right? I mean, you have no idea what I put in that coffee mug on Sunday morning. Um, but uh, uh, two, two reasons. One, bottle is a whole lot more likely to get swept when I make some big grand motion, which would be really distracting in the middle of the sermon. And also, if you pour it first, it gets some of the carbonation out of it, and you're less likely to just bust out with a big old burp right in the microphone halfway through the sermon. And so... Um, those, a couple of, couple of, uh, former preachers in the room are like, I knew that one. I knew that one. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, okay. We're jumping in back into, uh, John chapter four and actually, hopefully Lord willing, going to wrap up John chapter four today. I hope, um, I hope this has been encouraging to you. Um, and I want to connect. So one of the things I'm trying to do, here's the, the good thing about taking our time and moving through this is there's a depth that we can reach. I mean, you study John chapter 4 probably your whole life, but, but as spending four or five weeks studying just John chapter 4, um, is that there's a depth we can reach that's really potent, that you can really get down into the passage like this and dig down deeply and connect to it. The, the negative is it's easy to forget what you learned five or six weeks ago at the beginning of this chapter. It's easy to miss that, or, or if um, many, many families um, come one Sunday in four, um, for example. Well, that's going to be tough on you if you come one Sunday in four or one Sunday in six. Um, it, it may be stunning to you that you come one Sunday in six and we're still in John chapter four the next time you show up, but, um, but, it, but there's going to be a, you're going to miss pieces along the way. So one of the things, and our brains just don't do that super well anyway, so one of the things I always try to do is connect to the overall narrative as well as dive deeply into the given situation. So when we look at John chapter 4, this last little section about this, um, this, this fascinating little story, um, starting in verse 46, so he, being Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee. Now again, because he had been there before, and we've seen that, he, he changed water into wine in Cana. <clears throat> so he comes back where he had made the water wine back in chapter 2. And in Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So Capernaum is also in Galilee. It's on the other side of a mountain ridge um, that when we go visit, we go up onto the mountain ridge because um, it's got all types of traditional power that's cool to experience up there. But, so you have to drive past that to get to Cana. Um, and so when you, or in their case, walk past there, it's about 25 miles uh, from Cana to Capernaum and back. That's um, um, 25 each way, excuse me. So, uh, which is not uncommon. You'll notice even in Texas, because Texas cities were set up um, back in the day when you walked or rode a horse from city to city. If you drive, say, from here to Waco or something like that, you'll notice that about every 20, 25 miles is where there's a small town. That was there because when you're walking or riding a horse from city to city to city to city, that's about the distance you would need. 20 miles is about, if you're in good shape, is about a day walking. It's about half a day riding. And so you wanted to have that. That was set up that way. Well, this is about the same. So here's what we have, though. At this point, we've, we've run into Nicodemus, a religious leader in Jerusalem, a bigwig, a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin, uh, a, a powerful political and religious leader, Nicodemus, a Samaritan woman, a nobody from nowhere, no significance from an insignificant place, and even in that insignificant place, she is insignificant. Pretty extreme. Then the disciples, many of whom were from Galilee, were going back to their hometown. Jesus called many of them from these shores. And now an official from Galilee, likely someone who works for one of the Herods, 
Um, the Herods still run um, Israel at this time. We've talked about them in the past. You can go back and study them a little bit. The, the Herods were crazy. Um, the, the, the Ewings from Dallas TV show don't, even, don't have anything on the Herods. Okay, they were, the Herods were even more likely to kill each other, intermarry with each other, have children with each other, that kind of stuff, than even some of the crazy, I don't know, Dynasty, Falcon Crest, any of these ringing a bell for anybody? So that's a, I don't know what the modern day version of this is, so, because um, I, don't, I don't watch enough TV to know anymore, especially not that kind. So um, here, for example, um, I'll share this with John Redfern this week during one of the commentaries references, for example, maybe this guy worked for Chusa. Now you don't know who Chusa is, even though you've read the book of Luke before, you don't know who he is. I didn't either. But look at this, in, in Luke 8, 1 through 3, soon afterwards he went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Again, this is Jesus from the book of Luke. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their needs. So here you have these women who traveled with Jesus, and one of them was the wife of an official who worked for Herod. Named, the, the official's name was Chusa. His wife traveled with Jesus. Her name is Joanna. It may be that this is where their paths crossed, that this man who comes to get Jesus in Cana from Capernaum, 25 miles away, is Chusa. Remember that when these things were written, a lot of these unnamed people were known by their original audience. They knew each other. They're unnamed in the same way that if you had a small group of people, if this, was a, if this was a church that had been growing for 90 years, you could just reference someone's last name or even just reference someone's job title and everyone knew who you meant. So they knew, probably knew about it. Maybe so. We don't know. We really don't know. But here's, here's the, the narrative that's been building is, listen to this. Who needs this message? In the book of John, here we are in chapter 4. So far, who needs this good news? Is it, is it rich people? Is it poor people? Is it powerful people? Is it insignificant people? Is it old people or is it young people? Is it men or is it women? And already by John chapter 4, the answer is yes. All of them. This, this, every, every part of the population, this is a census being taken from the top to the bottom, from the beginning to the end. Everyone needs this message. Those who are very, very close to Jesus, those who have barely heard of Jesus, all of them need this message. Who needs it? All of us do. So I'm really going to encourage you to focus. As we look, I, encourage that, I would encourage that every Sunday. As we dive into this, it's so easy for us to be distracted by whatever's stressing us or whatever's going to happen next or, or what we're going to do for lunch or whatever. It's so easy to do that. And I want to encourage you to focus. Don't let this be about you. Let this be about him and then let him be about you. Let him speak to you. Your, your, your job is to, is to focus in on his message for you. I think that's always going to be our job when it comes to this. This man is coming to Jesus as, a, as an official, maybe working for the Herods, whatever, a, an official. But notice he's not coming to Jesus as an official, not as a man of power, not as a man of influence. He is coming to Jesus as a father. Fascinating how that fell on Father's Day as we dive into that conversation. 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea, to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
You might feel like this is kind of harsh. I do. Jesus makes a critical point here where there's a problem here. Just so you know, the Greek word here for you is plural. Jesus is doing that thing where he's speaking to one person, but he's actually speaking to everybody. This is not so much a criticism of the man. This is a criticism of the people, of their mindset. And we're going to see this over and over and over again through the book of John, is that people want to get on Jesus' coattails. They want, to, they want to join the gravy train and get something from Jesus. That's why they're involved with all this, is they want to get some physical need met. They want food. They want water. They want something, a physical need met, and Jesus is always pushing them back to, no, no, this is, that's not what this is really about, not what this is really about. Here you have, Jesus has shown up with the good news, and the man comes to him and says, okay, good news, what I need is my son healed. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you're not going to believe unless you get a sign, are you? But he's saying it to everybody. So there's not so much a harsh thing about the man, it's harsh about the, the everybody, about all of them. Not everyone gets to see a miracle. That may seem unfair to you. There are many in the neo-atheist movement who that's their big gripe. How come some people got to see miracles or some people get to see miracles? I don't get to see a miracle. I don't want, Thomas didn't have to believe until he saw wounds in Jesus' side, so I don't want to have to believe until I see wounds in Jesus' side. I mean, okay. If you want to draw a line in the sand like that, um, I mean, good luck with that. It's God is the one who determines what we get. That may seem unfair. No, no. It is unfair. It may seem unjust. It's okay that God is not fair. We're, all, we're Americans. We know that God is not fair. It's not fair that we got to be born here. It's not fair. So fair is not a measure of anything of success. Happening to be fair is fine. What you want to be is loving and just. God is loving and just, and he, he, he is just in this, and he gives what is needed, what is necessary for faith, whether we choose to go with that or not. But in this situation, we don't all get to see a miracle, but everyone still has to believe. Talk more about that in a second. So they want miracles, they want physical stuff. This clash of ideas is going to continue. Jesus keeps trying to point people toward the spiritual. They can't get their minds off the physical. Christ's critical words are maybe also focused on the limits that, that the Father pays uh, or, or places on Jesus Christ. Notice that, that the Father, in his desperation, comes to Jesus and says, come with me to heal my son. So, he has enough of a concept of who Jesus is, of the possibility of Jesus to think, Jesus, if you would come lay hands on my son, you might could heal him. It doesn't even cross his mind that Jesus might could heal him without coming to his house. That's beyond his imagination. This is the error I heard years and years ago, the error of praying answers rather than praying requests. So often we want to pray answers. And we tell God how to answer the prayers we have for him versus just saying, hey, this is, this is what I feel. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is my situation. And instead of giving him instructions on how to take care of us, we might just go to him and say, hey, would you take care of me? We think we have the answer. Well, if, we, if God would just do this to me, then I would be happy or be satisfied or whatever. If God would just provide this thing, that would be the, the, dad, the dad wants his prayer is that Jesus would come to his house. That's not really what he needs. But I do love the dad, and I love Jesus' response to him anyway. All the father can grasp is that his son is dying, and he's out of options. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The language here also, by the way, is very clear. The boy is on the verge of death. 
seems that the father cared only about the child. He'd come 25 miles, probably on foot. I'll show you why I think that in a minute. He'd heard Jesus could possibly heal people about the boys about to die. They're a good day away by foot. Desperation as a source of belief. Um, I read a line that said, human sorrow is the birth pang of faith. Sometimes that's how we start. As much as none of us want that, none of us want to be broken. None of us want to suffer. None of us want to experience that. But most of us who are believers would admit that our faith grows stronger in those times. I've never been one of those people willing to ask for it, though. I don't know if you have that kind of faith. Um, there was a, a, a nun, a medieval nun who I studied at one point who um, she boggled my mind because she prayed that God would bring her to the point of death to grow her faith. Um, and according to legend, according to her writings, he did. They actually performed last rites on her. She got so sick and to the point of death, and they performed last rites on her. And the instant they did, she was well. Um, and that's, but she asked God to do that to her. I don't have that. <laughs> I don't know what kind of faith that takes. Um, I don't have that. The idea of there being no atheists in foxholes, I think, is a powerful concept. When we really get desperate is when we turn. It will be fascinating to learn how many people um, put their faith in God in the last moments of their lives. I know for some of us, that's our hopes for our parents or our grandparents, that in the last moments of their life, as they felt their heart stop working, they cried out. I pray that that's more common even than we know. Um, I love sometimes looking at the art um, of these stories in order to get a sense in my brain of, of how to tell some of these stories. I want to show you something interesting. So there's a numerous pictures I found of this story. Here's one. There's one. There's one. There's one. Is that it? What did you notice? The dad is always on his knees. He's always portrayed as being on his knees. This is a desperate man. He has nothing left. He's tried all his different options, and in the end, all he's got is this. I want to take a second and comment on being a dad. Um, you may recognize, you may or may not know this, this, this week is the, was the anniversary of the death of an iconic American. His name was Marion Morrison. Anybody? John Wayne. Um, this struck me as very powerful. I've used, I stole for years ago the image from Gary Smalley and John Trent, the idea that most of us as men, we are, we are comfortable with the idea that we are Clark Kent. We are not comfortable with the thought that we are Superman. Um, I like this idea. I think we can all wrap our brains around being Marion Morrison. It's hard for me to imagine the concept of being John Wayne. That, that what I do, what I say, the way I act, the way I respond, the way I lead carries huge impact on the people around me. That's unthinkable to me. I'm just me. Like, I, I know me well enough to know what a slap I am. Um, I, I know me well enough to know how bad I am at these things. Um, it, 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 men, you don't have to admit this, but I will tell you, when I get with just a group of men and I, and I say this, how many of you feel like you've been faking it since you were about 14? How many of you feel like that at some point somebody's going to catch on about the fact that you have no clue what you're doing? They put you in charge of a company. They put you in charge of a church. Oh, wait, sorry, a company. They put you in charge of, they put you in charge of a family. And if they ever catch on to the fact that you have no clue what you're doing, they're going to be stunned. They're going to be like, wait, wait, what? You don't, 
You don't know, they didn't teach you this? I, st- I assume they taught you this. Like, I don't, no. I'm just doing what seemed to make sense at the time. I'm kind of making this up as I go, right? Guys, that's, that's so often that is true about us that we're going, I don't, I mean, I, 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 I put on a good show. I can, I can act with confidence. I hope, I hope I'm choosing well because I'm being confident about it. Count on the fact that as men, guys, as men, we, we have to, that's why we have to be consistently learning and growing and, and developing. It's, 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 we protect ourselves from this stuff in an effort to, to, to maintain the illusion of being in control and knowing what we're doing. So we, we don't read books and we don't, we don't listen to podcasts and we don't, we don't watch parenting things and, and marriage things and, and stuff like that because that, then someone might catch on to the fact we have no idea what we're doing in regards to these different things. We don't, we don't do that, whereas we've got to be doing that because we have this authority, we have this voice, whether we like it or not, we are supermen to our wives and children and people around us. The actions that we take have the impact of Superman, not the impact of Clark Kent. We have the voice of the Duke, not the voice of Marion. It, it, it matters what we say and what we do. To us, it doesn't because we're just us. Here you have this, this idea you can count on the more defensive that a man is, the more arrogant that a man is, the more prideful that the man is, even the more narcissistic that he is, although that means it's buried down inside, the more insecure we are. You've got to count on that. We all have these deep insecurities and, and the things we've been dealing with. So I would, I would encourage you dads, I, I was listening to um, uh, with my son Holland on the way here, an, uh, an oldie but a goodie, an old Michael W. Smith song. Um, that uh, he, I was telling him I like the words to this, and, and I'm not going to do the whole thing, I'm summarizing it, but the song, um, it, it talks about all the things he has been. I have been uncertain, I have been unqualified, I have been unmerciful, I have been unrighteous, I've been unintelligent, I've been unintentional, I've been undignified, I've been unreliable, I've been undeserving, and the, and the song goes on and on. But the chorus is, but because of you and all that you went through, I know that I have never been unloved. And so as dads, I am sure that we've all experienced that unqualified, unmerciful. You pick it, the character flaw, we've probably shown it. It's lived out in us and yet understand, dads, you've never been unloved. And God then gives us the opportunity to model this. It's a, it's a great thing. Now, I, I imagine as Jesus is still talking, at some point the dad is thinking only one thing, and that is less talking, more walking. Jesus, you're still talking. I came and told you my son is dying. He's 25 miles away, and you're still talking. Please come save my son. Please come heal my son. I love that, that Christ condemns the attitude that I must, I, na- I name the, listen, I will believe if. God, you jump through these hoops then I'll put my faith in you. God, you do this thing for me, then I will. It's amazing to me throughout history how often we hear about people who at some point, whether it was not a foxhole or some other setting, God, you do this for me, and then I'll believe in you. And what's shocking isn't that we do that, but how often God does it. How patient is he with us? I mean, when a child says, I tell you what, you make spaghetti for dinner, and I won't throw a wall-eyed fit. And most of us would be like, tell you what, you throw the wall, I'd fit, you're going to your room the rest of the night, and you don't get anything for dinner, right? That may not be okay. CPS people in the room, I didn't say that. That's a, like, you don't get anything, right? You just, you just. 
And, and in this case, Jesus, instead of Jesus saying like, you know what, you don't draw, you don't draw lines with me. You don't say, no, no, if, if you'll perform a miracle, then we'll believe. Jesus chastises that mindset, and then the message of the simple father, please heal my son. Sir, come down. Sir, Lord, by the way, same, Lord, come down before my son dies. We've got 25 miles to go. And Jesus turns to him. I love when Jesus heals people in afterthought. Like, this isn't the point I'm trying to make here. He says, Jesus, Jesus said to him in verse 50, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So talked about this this week. Redford asked me the question, what do you think the father was thinking as he walked away? I was like, man, that's a gr-. You realize he didn't know his son was healed. Jesus says, go, your son will live. And the man leaves. He leaves, and he leaves Jesus behind. He doesn't drag Jesus with him. He goes. That's what it means to believe. Belief isn't some type of just assent. It is to walk in faith. It is to say, no, no, I, okay, if you say he's healed, I'm going to go with that. And the man walks away. He has no idea if his son is alive or dead. They can't text him. They can't, they can't get on, he can't get on Facebook and check the status. He has no idea. He is 25 miles away, and there is no way to get the news to him faster. He leaves with no clue except faith. He walks away. He can't know. We may act tough because we're scared. The dads often feel an urgency to prepare the child for the hardships of life. Moms often feel an urgency to protect children from the hardships of life, and dads feel an urgency to prepare them for the hardships of life. Part of why um, it's a great thing when you have a mom and a dad in the home to be able to integrate those two concepts in a healthy way. Um, there's a sweetness in the language here, by the way. I tried to figure this out. So I've worked out the math here. I was really having a hard time with it to figure this out. Because at first I wanted him to be on a horse because he was an official. But horse, horse timing doesn't work. Only foot timing works. So no one else probably cares about this. But I actually spent like, I was like, this. okay, so here's the deal. At, at the seventh hour yesterday, verse 52 says, So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So in order to say yesterday, that means it has to have started the next day, which means it had to have gotten dark which happens probably 6 or 7 o'clock-ish. So 6 or 7 o'clock-ish at night. Well, the seventh hour is 1 o'clock. So you've got the dad leaving Cana, walking towards Capernaum to find out if his son is dead or alive, if Jesus was uh, full of it or if he knew what he was talking about. And so they're walking, and so, so he's walking towards, he starts walking towards Capernaum. At the moment the son suddenly is well, which happened at the moment Jesus said, your son will live, or your son lives. At that moment, the boy got well. His fever broke. He is suddenly well. At that point, the servants say, oh no, the master's gone all the way to Cana to find this guy. And all of a sudden, his son is well. The fever broke. He's well. He don't, we need to catch him. But we need to find him. We need to, we need to make, stop him before he annoys this holy man. He's going to find a holy man and make him walk all the way back here. We got to catch them on the way because so, he's well now. See what happens? One is in Cana at, at the seventh hour, and the other one is the others are in Capernaum at the seventh hour, and they start walking towards each other. Math teachers, right? At what point do they meet, right? It's all for X. So here's what happens. 
If you've got to imagine, they, he, they leave between somewhere between 1 and 2 p.m., both of them. It's 10 hours of solid walking, if you can walk 10 straight hours, which they probably could and none of us probably can. Um, could walk 10, 10 straight hours, and that may have been what he intended to do. What happens instead is five or six hours later, as he's walking, he's walking home, he's got a 10-hour trip ahead of him. At somewhere between five or six hours, I've got to imagine his head is down, he's going to walk through the night. It's now 7 o'clock at night, 6 or 7 o'clock at night. He's, in, he's still got another five hours to go. I assume he's walking until midnight. He's walking until he gets there. So here it is, it's now dark. I don't know how they spot each other, but somehow in the dark, the servants are probably checking everyone's face because they're expecting him to be walking with Jesus on the way back. They, they're checking him and they find him. And they go, oh, your son, he's well. And, and I, I gotta love the dads. He does exactly what humans do in this situation. He does exactly what you do, exactly what I would do in this situation. I have been a desperate dad. So we had, we had two miscarriages, and then we had Mark, and then we had Ellie, and then we had a third miscarriage, and then we got pregnant. And at about the same time that we had the miscarriages, Ginger lost all the symptoms of being, pre- of being pregnant one night. And so we stayed up all night, which we had done with the ones who had not lived, with the children who had died. We stayed up and prayed and prayed. Once we knew to do that, we stayed up and prayed and prayed that God would give us the mercy of giving us this child. That, that's Holland, the life of the party, for those of you who know him, right? The future youth minister extraordinaire. Um, I've been a desperate dad. I have clung to sheets and pillows and to my wife, praying that God would save that child, even, even after the three we had lost. I very much so have the attitude of King David. If Who knows, maybe, maybe God will give us the answer to this prayer. Um, I have been, I was a desperate dad. I've been a desperate dad with Michael. And those of you who have, um, who have worked with him in children's ministry, some of you know why. He could be a real handful, but developmentally, I mean, he had nothing. So, so when we got him at two months old, um, he did not attach. He couldn't even suck, swallow, and breathe. He could not. He was in self-destruction de- self mode, as babies do. Um, it took f- almost 20 days for him to learn to, and Ginger holding him constantly for him to learn to stay alive, to do what children do naturally, he couldn't do. And we don't know what cocktail of drugs was in his system when, when he was um, prenatal and, and when he was born and, and born two months uh, premature and all that stuff. And he learned to do that. But you know how little babies, how little babies when they first start crawling and walking, they, they crawl or walk or kind of toddle away from you and they get a few feet out and they turn and look, make sure you're still there. And then they, then they, go, the, and then they go a little bit further and they turn and look, make sure you're still there. Very normal developmentally. Michael didn't do that. At two, one day, I followed Michael through our neighborhood at about 10 or 15 feet behind him, and I just followed him while he walked. Um, he just walked for about an hour, whatever caught his attention. We call that pinging. Oh, and he would ping over here, and he walked. He walked hundreds of yards. He walked to multiple houses, swimming pools, ponds. He just would walk. He would walk, and look at it, and someone catches attention. He would, never knew I was behind him the entire time. I was just curious to see how far he would go, how long he would do it. I finally gave up. was like, he's going to go longer than I have time. So I was like, hey, Michael, it's time for us to head back to the house. He had no instinct for attaching that way. You can imagine as desperate as parents, as a desperate dad, praying that he would learn to attach. 
because we know that that's, that's bad news if kids can't do that. At age six in the city, in, in, when we were visiting Ginger's family in Kansas, um, he was running towards a playground. I was talking to Ginger on the phone about something. I took him to this playground. He's running to the playground. He gets about 15, 20 feet out in front of me at age six, almost seven. And he stops and turns and looks at me. And I just started like, I couldn't even talk. I started crying. I was like, Ginger, Michael just, he turned and looked at me. Like he just turned and checked in with me and then went back running again. Like age six, first time he'd ever done it to, to either of us. Like it, being a desperate dad, I think we, many of us understand what it means to be, maybe all of us do. We all have those experiences of being a desperate parent. Him falling on Christ, not even really knowing what he's doing. For the rest of their lives, John Redford said this, we were talking about this, for the rest of their lives, this, these parents, every time they look at that boy, they're going to remember what God did. Every time they see him, they're going to remember. Even with the tragedies in our lives, when we look back on the tragedies, we look back and, and we can remember. So the men do exactly what you would, the, the dad does exactly what you'd expect him to do. I'm imagining him grabbing them, by the way. They come up. Your son, your son, yes, yesterday, yesterday your son got well. They don't say the time. What difference does that make? He got well suddenly yesterday. And the dad grabs him and goes like, what time yesterday? You got to know he did. That's what you'd be like, wait, what time yesterday did he get well? And they're like, I don't know. Did you notice what time it was? I didn't notice. Um, gosh, about the seventh hour, I would say. That's about when we, can you imagine the dad being like, my faith was in something that stood Jesus told me he would live, and he's, and he's lived, and he, he started living the minute Jesus said he would live. It's such a cool picture of the dad <clears throat> realizing this. By the way, this was the second sign that Jesus had done when he came from Judea to Galilee, the other one being turning the water to wine, that, that, that at least that John records here. In both cases, Jesus seems a little bit hesitant. The man believes, but for humans, by the way, it tells us he believed, Remember it told us he believed and then left? Now look, look at verse 53. The father knew that that was the hour Jesus said to him, son, your son will live, and he himself believed. Oh, wait a minute. I thought he believed earlier. Well, yeah, but belief is a psychological state for us. Believing or not believing doesn't change the truth. The truth is the truth. For us, belief is hard. Faith is tough. It's tough when we can see it. It's tough when it's rational. But when we've got to walk away, I mean, he's been walking for five hours. How, how much do you, what do you think his faith has looked like over the last five hours? Like this? Mine would. I shouldn't have left. I shouldn't have left. I'm going to go back and get him. No. No, he said, go home. He said, go home. If I'm going to trust him, I've got to trust him. Getting him. But you know what? He should have. No, I'm going to. You would do that the whole way. It's probably why it took him so long to get half the distance as he had backtracked a few times and trying to figure out. This is, this is an, a, a, an incredible picture. Belief, belief is like a, it's like a tree or a, or a garden in us that we have to continue to invest in and grow in. It's not surprising to me when I hear about people who say, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to not go to church. I'm going to not read the Bible. I'm going to not pray. I'm going to not do, not, 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 for whatever for a year and then see if my faith still holds. Well, let, me, let me just tell you, it probably won't. That has nothing to do with the truth of your belief. It has to do with the fact that you're a human being. And our belief grows or fades based on how we are living our life, based on what we're investing in, based on what we... Of course that's the case. That has no bearing on the truth. That's like saying, hey, I've not studied math for a while, but I'm going to take the SAT and see if math has changed. 
No, but my score probably has. Since I've not, I've not multiplied a, a fraction in a few decades now, I can't imagine. I don't know. I have to do any of that kind of stuff now. I get my, see my kids working on that. And I'm like, I don't, Dad, can you help with this? I got nothing. <laughs> I can pay a tutor. That's the, how I can help, right? Somebody who actually knows how to do that stuff. I barely knew how to do it then, as my SAT scores would indicate. I barely knew how to do it then. Now, no, I've got nothing to help you with. Does that mean math has changed over this time? No, I've changed. We change as humans. That's part of the law of who we are. And look at this. His whole household believed. This happens a few times in the book of Acts. Um, and and it's, it's pretty amazing. We see this happen a few times throughout Scripture that where, where a, a father is converted, the father believes, he believes, and he really believes, and the, the following passages his whole household believes. I don't, I don't think this is some kind of magical, he believes and therefore they automatically got in. It is he believed and then led his family to believe. Don't you think he told them the story? What, and by the way, what? Guys, do we tell these stories? Do our kids know these stories? Do our family know these stories? Do they see when, when our faith is, is lived out and, it, and, and there's, there's evidence and proof and, and value and a, and a beauty to this. Do our kids see it? Do they experience it? Do we tell them? They've got to imagine the dad sat down and was like, son, how you feeling? I feel great, dad. You don't know why? So dad walked to, Caperne, to, to Cana yesterday and I met a guy, took me to, 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 to walked all night, got there at about lunchtime. I met up with this guy. I told him you were sick. I told him to come home and heal you and he wouldn't come. Dad, what? He wouldn't come? That's rude. Like, no, no. And then he said he was just, you know what? He just healed you from a distance. And it just happened to be at about one o'clock yesterday. Same time you got, Dad, that's the same time I got better. Right. Like he told this story and the son believes and the parents, the mom believes and the, and the rest of the family. This is a great picture, us living this out. Only dad could interpret this miracle. Think about that. Only dad has the whole story. Now, Jesus supernaturally probably knows what happened, but realize Jesus, Jesus isn't there when the dad gets home. Jesus is still back in Cana doing his stuff. Only the dad can interpret this story for his family. Only the dad can explain what's going on. Only the dad can tell the whole story. That's a beautiful picture for us as dads. Investing in something with staying power is something key for us. Dads, often we don't use our platform Kids, kids hear mom's voice a lot. Um, they hear dad's voice less often. But one of the things we've talked, I've talked with many people in the past about the fact is that, is that moms sometimes don't develop the platform in order for their message to be heard. And dads develop this platform and then they never have a message. Let's not let that be us dads. Let us, us be the dads who have this platform who then communicate, look how God has changed me Look how God has grown me. Look how I'm changing. Look how I'm willing to be silly. Look how whatever, that, that, that God would allow us that role of interpreting what he's teaching us for our kids. A couple of great examples, and there's hundreds of these, I'm sure, but a couple of great examples just celebrate this week. Um, I don't know if you have that picture I sent you, David. Of, um, so this is, this is at, at Kyle Lake Soccer Camp this week. Um, and, uh, and them praying with a young lady who... Um, put her faith in Christ this week um, at a soccer camp, which is not really about soccer, am I right? Um, uh, so David and Shirley Lake, in the name of their son, 
who is a minister who passed away years ago, set up this soccer camp. He loves soccer. And they had a few uh, hundred, hundred plus kids show up out there. They hear the gospel. And one of these kids responds, that happened this week. So Royal Family Kids Camp, where we, where we um, 40 kids and 80 workers. These are, can be tough kids. 40 kids and 80 workers. How about this? Bobby, um, and a lot, of, a lot of you did that. We prayed last week, um, but uh, Bobby Richardson, um, who, who had a kid who he, as I just, I just told this week this story, had a kid that years ago he was the kind of counselor for. I'm using not their language, but the language you'll understand. The counselor for that kid came back all these years later to be a counselor this year. That's investing in eternity, in a new generation of believers. Like, to, to leading kids to become not just believers, but even ministers, that's a beautiful thing. In this story, we see two people healed in an instant. A father's heart, a child's fever. The fever goes away, and the faith replaces it for the whole family. The father rescued, the father rescued a father through the son and captured a whole family. It's a, it's a cool Yet another cool story here from John for us to be encouraged by and challenged by. So let us be interpreting these for our families. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for the chance to see a father in action, to see you, the father, in action yet again. God, this, this message of freedom and hope and healing um, is for all of us. And it may involve a lot of walking sometimes. And it certainly involves some blind faith. Um, Lord, your faith is not, uh, you don't always call us to ha- believe in things we can't see or can't understand, but, but sometimes you do. And, uh, and Father, I, I thank you that, um, that we can have that through the, through the power of your spirit, through being created in your image, that we can walk in faith that's beyond us. God, I pray that for all of us in here. I pray that as dads, the dads a special day, we communicate the appreciation um, as we seek to live out um, paternal traits of you to those around us, to our families, to our friends, to our sons and daughters and the sons and daughters of other people. God, I pray you would strengthen us with that in supernatural ways and however we need to respond today, Lord, to the message that you have for us, we would live it out in your son's name. Amen.